This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Coming through, is that right? Okay, right. I can't tell up here. I really can't. Luke chapter twelve, and let's look at uh, beginning with verse fifty-four, and we're going to look through chapter thirteen and verse nine. And uh, this is another rough and preached last week from a parable that's only found in Luke. And we're looking today at another one of those unique passages that is only uh, found in the Gospel of Luke at the end of chapter twelve and at the beginning of chapter. 13, the time that is given us. Let's pick it up at verse 54 of chapter 12. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, right away you say, a storm is coming. And so it does. And when the south wind is blowing, you say it's going to be hot. And it is. Hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky, but why don't you know how to interpret this present time? Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? As you are going with your adversary to the ruler, make an effort to settle with him on the way. Then he won't drag you before the judge. The judge hands you over to the bailiff, and the bailiff throw you into prison. I tell you, You will never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. At that time, some people came and reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And he responded to them, Do you think that these Galileans were more sinful than all the other Galileans because they suffered these things? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. Or those 18 that the tower in Siloam fell on and killed, do you think that they were more sinful than all the other people who live in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree that was planted in his vineyard. He came looking for fruit on it and found none. He told the vineyard worker, listen, for three years, I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it even waste the soil? But he replied to him, Sir, leave it this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. Perhaps it will produce fruit next year, but if not, you can cut it down. Now Jesus here is talking to these crowds about four tendencies that people have in every age when it comes to their use of time and when it comes to the times in which they are living. And the first two tendencies are very unwise, and the second two are wise. Let's look at all four of them. The first is a willful ignorance about 
the times. And we see that in verses 54 through 56 of chapter 12. Jesus says to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, right away you say a storm is coming, and it does. And when the south wind is blowing, you say it's going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky, but why don't you know how to interpret this present time? Wow. What's going on here? So in verses 54 and 55, Jesus is talking about kind of common weather signs in the Middle East that, that everybody knew. I mean, in a culture where so much depended on the weather, people knew these, these signs. They, they knew that when they looked to the west over the Mediterranean Sea and moisture was rising over the sea, they, they knew it was going to rain. And when they felt a breeze blowing from the south, the desert was to the south of them, they knew it was going to be hot. These were like totally obvious signs that everybody in that culture knew. They were entirely obvious signs. But Jesus says when it comes to the signs of what you're seeing God do all around you, so many of you plead ignorance. And Jesus says in verse 56, he says, you call them hypocrites. He says, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky, but why don't you know how to interpret this present time? Why do you look, look around you and you know these signs of weather, but yet you've seen the things that I am doing in your midst and you say you don't understand? I mean, like, think of the things already in our study of Luke that we have seen Jesus doing. I mean, lepers are being cleansed. Demons are being cast out. People are being healed. A young man has been raised from the dead. And people are not only being raised from the dead physically, but we have seen life after life after life that was torn asunder, that is being made whole by Jesus. And these things are, have not been done in a corner. They have been, they've been out front. The ministry of Jesus has been right out front. And yet so many people and especially the religious people who should have been the first to, to understand that this is God at work. So many were saying, we don't get it. We don't understand. What's going on? Well, Jesus says, you don't see it because you don't want to see it. It's not just ignorance. It's a willful ignorance. But see, they didn't want to see it because it was happening in their eyes among the wrong people. It's kind of like in our country in the, in the late 60s when, during the Jesus movement, when God's spirit began to work among young people and so many young people that were a part of the hippie culture. And so you had, you had peop, these hippies that were coming to Christ and so many religious people, so many church people, 
you know, looked at that and they said, it can't be real because it's happening among the wrong people. Look at the way these people dress. Look at the length of their hair. Look at all of this. It can't, you know, it can't be, it can't be real because it's happening among who we think of as the wrong people. That's the way it was in the day of Jesus too. Because the religious people, the insiders, looked at what was happening, but see, in their eyes, it was happening. It couldn't be real because it was happening among the wrong people, outsiders, Gentiles, Samaritans, tax collectors, prostitutes. And they said, they're the wrong people. We're the right people. No, Jesus says, you're hypocrites. It's been interesting. You know, we, we've been praying for the the revival that's been happening at, at Asbury and Kentucky and some other college campuses. And it's been really interesting to see the reactions of some religious people to what's been happening. And to, you know, it's been frankly very disappointing to see some religious, smug religious people sitting back that are not even a part of it and sitting back with their stupid phone in their hand and, and casting stones on what is happening because, you know, the, 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 the movement of God is not happening among their particular theological tribe. And so they look and, and they say, oh, you know, these young people, these, they, haven't, they haven't dotted all the I's, they haven't crossed all the T's, so how can this be real? analyzing the revival instead of longing to experience revival or understand their own need for revival. Friend, that is not a mark of a tender heart. That's the mark of a cold heart. I'm always amazed at what happens when Jesus comes to the pool of Bethesda and you know, it was that, it's that incident that happens in John 5 where Jesus sees the man who's been paralyzed for 38 years by the pool, the pool of Bethesda. And Jesus comes up to this, this man and he asks what seems on the surface to be the strangest question. Do you want to get well? I mean, he's been paralyzed for almost four decades. But Jesus says, do you want to get well? Because see, sometimes we can settle into patterns in our life where, you know, we say we want change, but we really don't want change. And we can settle into a pattern of spiritual paralysis as well. And we can talk about the work of God and we can say that we want the work of God, but do we really want the work of God? Do we really want to get well? Trevin Wax wrote something that was so incredibly uh, powerful recently. He, sa he said this, it's possible to say you want revival, but deep down to not want the discomfort God's presence might bring. It's possible to sing songs every Sunday asking for renewal while nursing grudges and bitterness you don't want to be delivered from. It's possible to enjoy division, your theological tribalism, or the secret sins you harbor. And so Jesus' question remains, 
do you want to be healed? Sometimes we don't see the work of God because we don't want to see it. We don't want to experience it. So willful ignorance about the time. Second, procrastination about the times. Let's look at verses 57 through 59. Jesus says, why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? As you were going with your adversary to the ruler, make an effort to settle with him on the way. Then he won't drag you before the judge. The judge hands you over to the bailiff and the bailiff throw you into prison. I tell you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. So Jesus here is telling a story about something that was all too common in that culture and all too common in ours. Two people fighting about money. And we know they were fighting about money because some of the Greek words in verse 58 make it clear these were financial officials that we're talking about. What's happened is that this guy has done something wrong financially, but rather than humble himself and admit his wrong and settle out of court, he says, ah, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this to court. Jesus says, that's not a wise thing to do. <laughs> because if you do that, not only are you going to lose every penny, you're going to get thrown in jail. Now, what's the point of the story? Consider your spiritual indebtedness to God. Each of us has a sin debt. And either you are going to pay for that sin debt forever in hell, or you will look to the one who paid it in your place. The one who on the cross cried out, paid in full. Friend, if you are not yet in Christ, look to Jesus. Colossians 2 and verse 14 says, He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. But listen, that payment only becomes effectual for those who turn to Jesus in repentance and faith, and who know him as their Savior and Lord and King. Christians, one of the reasons why we take the Lord's Supper regularly is to be reminded of the centrality of the gospel, that Jesus paid it all, that we had a sin debt that was crushing us, that we could never pay. And that Jesus paid that so that we could be forgiven and free. And one of the things that the Lord's Supper should do is humble us and remind us of our own sin and our own need for a Savior. It should tenderize our hearts toward God and toward others. It should make us more humble. And that's the next place where Jesus is headed in this passage. Humility about the times. Let's look at the beginning of chapter 13 and verses 1 through 5. At that time, some people came and reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And he responded to them, 
Do you think that these Galileans were more sinful than all the other Galileans because they suffered these things? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. Or those 18 that the tower in Siloam fell on and killed, do you think that they were more sinful than all the other people who live in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. So what Jesus is talking about here is two tragic events that had happened recently in Jerusalem. The first was an incident of shocking cruelty that was carried out by the Roman governor, Pilate. There were some Galileans, pilgrims, that had come to offer their sacrifices. It must have been around Passover. That was the only time that that lay people would offer their own sacrifices. But these Galilean people were probably in the courtyard of the temple, and they were offering their animal sacrifices. And we don't know what prompted it, but Pilate sent his soldiers into the area of the temple itself, and they just slaughtered a bunch of these Galilean pilgrims. And so the, the, the ground of the courtyard in the temple was running red with both the blood of the animals that was being sacrificed and the, and the blood of these pilgrims that had been slaughtered by these soldiers. I mean, it was an incident of shocking cruelty and violence. The other incident that had happened was seemingly more random. It was a structural collapse of a tower that was at the corner of the south and east walls of the city of Jerusalem, and the tower just gave way and it crushed 18 people that were beneath. And so Jerusalem was buzzing about what had happened, these two incidents. And people were asking, what is the meaning of these things? What is the meaning of this? And most of them were drawing the entirely wrong conclusion. Because most people were looking at the people who died and they were saying, oh, maybe something was going on in their life that was wrong. You know, maybe, maybe it happened to them because, you know, they were more sinful than other people, and so God had allowed it to happen to them. It's kind of like Job, you know, in the Old Testament, where all these terrible things happen in Job's life. And what, what did Job's so-called friends come on the scene? What do they say? Hey, Job, you need to repent. Something's going on. Something's happening beneath the surface. Some sin's going on that you need to repent of. You know, you need to get it right. That's why all this bad stuff is happening to you. You know, or like the man in, in the ninth chapter of John who was born blind. And so Jesus and his disciples come upon this poor guy. He's been blind from birth. And even his disciples fall into the trap of, of, of saying, and they ask Jesus, Master, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus tells them, you don't have a clue what you're talking about. Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. This happened that the works of God might be displayed. In other words, there are things that are happening here. God has deeper purposes than what you can possibly understand. Not only is your conclusion wrong, but you're not even asking the right questions. You're not even concerned about what you should be concerned about. And that's what Jesus is saying here. What should concern you 
is not what was going on in the lives of these people who died. The message that you should be getting from this or from any tragedy is the fragility of your own life. How fragile your own life is and where are you with God? There's this famous passage from Calvin's Institutes where he's talking about the the fragility of, of human life. And some of the language here is very 16th century-ish, but you will get the point of what he is saying. He says, innumerable are the evils that beset human life, innumerable to the deaths that threaten it. We need not go beyond ourselves since our body is the receptacle of a thousand diseases. In other words, it doesn't have to be something bad that happens from the outside that can take your life. No, a, a cell goes awry in our, own, in our bodies. Something happens with our heart and it just stops beating. I mean, all, you don't have to go outside the body. All kinds of things can happen inside the body. But plenty can happen outside the body too. Calvin, Calvin says, Embark upon a ship. You are one step away from death. Mount a horse. If one foot slips, your life is imperiled. If he were riding today, he would say, you know, get behind the wheel of a car. And you're like, drive down the road. Your life is imperiled. Go through the city streets. You are subject to as many dangers as there are tiles on the roofs. If there is a weapon in your hand or a friend's hand, harm awaits. All the fierce animals you see are armed for your destruction. But... If you try to shut yourself up in a walled garden, seemingly delightful, there a serpent sometimes lies hidden. Your house, continually in danger of fire, threatens in the daytime to impoverish you, at night even to collapse upon you. Your field, since it is exposed to hail, frost, and drought, and other calamities, threatens you with barrenness and hence famine. I pass over poisonings, ambushes, robberies, open violence, which in part besiege us at home, in part dog us abroad. Amid these tribulations, must not man be most miserable since but half alive in this life, he weakly draws his anxious and languid breath as if he had a sword perpetually hanging over his neck. Now, his point here is not that we should live in fear, and it's not that we should be miserable. His point is that we should understand that our lives are incredibly fragile. And that's the point that Jesus is making. Consider the fragility of your own life and where you are in relation to God. How many times do we hear during COVID or even since, stay safe, be safe? Where? How? The only safe place in this life is in the arms of Jesus. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life.
We should not fear dying tragically, but perishing ultimately before God. The issue that should concern us is not when we die or how we die, but are we ready to die? And again, if you are not yet in Christ, turn to Jesus. Trust in him. Put yourself in his arms, the arms that love you so much that they were stretched out on a cross and died for you. There's a message here for believers as well. This message of repentance. Unless you repent. Because humbling, humbling ourselves and repenting is not something that we should just do to become Christians at the beginning of the Christian life. Humbling ourselves and repenting is something that we must do daily as believers. Our, our daily lives as God's people should be lives that are marked by daily humbling of ourselves and daily repentance of sin. It's been interesting to hear reports of people who have been at some of these revivals that have been happening at Asbury and other places, but, you know, they, they shared that what you're hearing in these places, you're not hearing, you're not hearing these people up there, you know, uh, talking about other people's sins. You know, lobbying culture war bombs at non-Christians who don't have our Savior, who don't have the Holy Spirit, and who thus cannot be expected to think and act like believers. You're, you're not hearing at these revivals people kind of expressing anger at unbelievers. No, what you're seeing there is people looking in the mirror and getting real about their own sin. Is that not where change begins with God's people? When we look in the mirror and we humble ourselves and we repent of our own sin? Humility and repentance should mark the people of God every day. And again, this is one of the reasons why we take the Lord's Supper. It is a reminder of our need for God's grace as we humble ourselves and understand our need for a Savior. Humility about the times. Er, fourth, urgency about the times. Jesus tells us a little parable in verses 6 through 9 about a fig tree. He told them this parable. A man had a fig tree that was planted in his vineyard. He came looking for fruit on it and found none. He told the vineyard worker, listen, for three years I've come looking for fruit from this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it even waste the soil? But he replied to him, sir, leave it this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. Perhaps it will produce fruit next year, but if not, you can cut it down. Now the message of this little parable is straightforward and plain. God is incredibly patient, but there comes a time when his patience runs out. If, if you are, are not yet in Christ, 
the reason you are still alive, the reason you are still breathing, and the reason that, that God has put you within the hearing of, of this message today is to give you an opportunity to come to him. Second Peter 3 and, and verse 9 says, The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But do not presume upon God's patience. Romans 2.4. Romans 2.4 says, could you change the slide, please? Romans 2.4 says, Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Again, if you are not yet in Christ, time is short. Eternity is long. God has given you today, right now, to turn to Christ and trust him. Christians, you have one brief life to make a difference. How are you using your time? We've been given a stewardship. What about the stewardship of your time? What about the stewardship of your finances? What about the stewardship of your spiritual gifts? How are you using your lips? There are people in our lives, family, friends, neighbors, people that we go to school with that don't yet know Christ. And, and you are the person who is closest to them who does know Christ. Are you using your lips to, to share the gospel with them and invite them here so that they can hear more? Or are you using your lips to gossip and tear down? Is there a relationship in your life that needs to get right? Is there a sin that needs to be repented of? The Bible says that we are to examine ourselves as we come to the Lord's table. And let's spend a few moments doing that right now. Let's pray together. Let's spend a few moments just in reflection before the Lord, confession before the Lord as we prepare to take part in the supper that he ordained for his people.
Lord, would your spirit do a work of humbling in our lives, Lord, about our own sin and about the goodness of the gospel of a Savior who, who paid a debt that was crushing us, a debt that we could never pay. that we might be forgiven and free, but Lord, we don't want to use our, our forgiveness as a license to sin. Lord, give us the grace to repent, to turn from known sins in our lives, and Lord, would you reveal our hidden sins to us that we might know them and turn from them Lord, reveal our blind spots to us. Lord, would your spirit come and cleanse and work and heal and restore. Lord, purge our hearts from all bitterness And just the junk that doesn't need to be there, Lord, from anything that would hinder our walk with you or our walk with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, Lord, we ask for your spirit to work deeply in our lives, Lord, and just, just minister your love and power and grace now as we take part in the supper that you ordained that just points to the work of Jesus on our behalf. And it's in his name that we pray. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12: to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer and find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia.